0: And uh, this last line of the Lord's Prayer that we're going to look at today is, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Now, if you're following along in your scriptures, you might note that there is an asterisk by it that says this was not in original manuscripts. And in fact, that is very much the case. Most translators would argue that this was added a little bit later on. Perhaps it was a scribe who was trying to add a nice conclusion or to bring in a doxology that was common in the early church. But I wanted to, to focus in on this section of the Lord's Prayer today because I, I think while it may not be in the original text, it's, it's clearly a very biblical idea. It is a, a form of prayer that I think is very instructive and very much rooted in the biblical tradition. I'd like to pull up the slide from First Chronicles where it says in 29:11 Yours O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours Yours is the kingdom O Lord and you are exalted as head above all we hear in this Old Testament passage a very clear parallel to this part of the Lord's Prayer that has been common as we enter into this practice. Clearly, this, uh, this prayer of praise, this prayer of seeking God's kingdom power and glory is something that came out of the Jewish tradition and continued with the early church To summarize this series, one of the things that I have emphasized throughout our teaching on the Lord's Prayer is this, that prayer is actually more for us than it is for God. Prayer isn't primarily about bringing God up to speed about what's going on in our lives, but it's more for our formation— that as we pray, as we seek God, it is our will that is bent towards the things of God. It is our mind that is settled in an awareness of who God is. It is our hearts that find rest in God. Prayer is more for us than it is for God, it is a very formative practice. And I, I want to suggest to you today that this last line of the prayer has a similar effect. That this, this last line of the Lord's Prayer that is common in our practice is an invitation to yield to God. To yield and surrender to his kingdom, his power, and his glory. That's the formative practice that is happening as we now conclude the Lord's Prayer. As we say this wor- these words, what we are doing is yielding our various kingdoms and our attempts to be in control It is putting aside our various attempts at power and control over the the challenges that we face, setting aside our ego and our agenda, and instead seeking God's kingdom, his approach to power, and his glory. There is an invitation in this part of the prayer for us to experience the freedom of surrendering to God's purposes in our world. What I'd like to do as we explore this theme of yielding, of surrendering to God's kingdom, God's power, is to actually look at the, the common Palm Sunday text. On Palm Sunday, we look at the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We see a, a story of how he came in riding humbly on a donkey as people gathered and waved pr- palm branches and, and proclaimed, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us what I'd like to do is see that this story of the triumphal entry helps illustrate what it looks like to yield or surrender to a different kind of king, to a different type of power. As we tell this story, I think we can live into this prayer of seeking God more fully. This might sound a little bit weird uh, coming from a pastor, but I've always found Palm Sunday to be a bit of an odd thing for us to celebrate. Now, it's entirely appropriate for us to sing Hosanna, God Save Us, to bring our praises to God. But what's interesting and what we're going to explore in this story is that what we're doing on Palm Sunday is aligning ourselves with a group of worshipers who actually are missing the point We're reenacting a scene where there are a group of people who are praising Jesus, but they are expecting him to be a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of king. And so isn't it interesting that we reenact this scene, that we pretend to be these people. We wave palm branches and we sing Hosanna. We're aligning ourselves with a group of people who are missing the point. And so it's a bit of a weird thing for us to do, but as I've been reflecting more on this reality, I I think it's actually a very appropriate thing for us to do. Because I think like this first group of worshipers, sometimes we are looking to other types of messiahs. Sometimes we misunderstand Jesus. We're looking to other types of power, other kinds of kingdoms to bring hope to our broken lives. And so perhaps... Palm Sunday might be seen as an act of public confession. This annual time of the year where we say, you know what, Jesus, we are actually sometimes like these first worshipers. Sometimes we are seeking a different Messiah. Sometimes we are expecting you to be someone that you are not. Maybe Palm Sunday is an opportunity for us to again yield and surrender to Jesus on his terms. There's a call both to repent from maybe some of the other gods, other idols that we turn to for hope, but also rediscover how this humble man who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey only to be arrested and murdered is exactly the type of king that we need. That he is welding the exact type of power that will bring healing and hope and liberation to this broken world. So I want us to discover in the story how we might yield to that, discover this kingdom, this power, and this glory that will endure, that is at work both now and forever. You know, I, I don't blame these first worshipers for their hope, for their excitement, because they were longing for hope. They were longing for a Messiah. These first worshipers lived in a very bleak time in history and faced very dire circumstances. I'll pull up this quote from uh, Tacitus, who is a historian in this era, and he says, The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. This is the the backdrop of this scene. There's these Jewish peasants living in a time filled with disaster, filled with war, filled with strife. And as we zero in on the exact crowd in this story, we we discover even more reason for them to be calling out for help. For these were Jewish peasants. Now, in Mark's gospel, which I want to notice some details in in this text, there's this there's small detail where it says that they waved branches that they themselves had cut from the field. Just a small detail in the text, but it tells us that this is the poor working class, those who are the land laborers working the field. And a Jewish peasant in this time in history faced a very difficult existence. On the one hand, as a Jewish person, they were occupied by the Romans, and the Romans were bullies infringed on their religious freedoms. But as these land laborers, they were also oppressed by the the rich priestly class in their own tradition. The Jewish priests often levied high taxation on them and and so they were very vulnerable. I just imagine these land laborers and I mean they didn't have access to health care. They didn't have 401ks to fall back on. They didn't have an ambulance they could call In this day and age, an abscess tooth could mean death. This is the type of vulnerability they are living with, and so we can understand why they are excited when Jesus processes to Jerusalem. Because in many ways, Jesus is acting like the coming Messiah was expected to act. He departs from the Mount of Olives to this procession and this this parade of praise. To these Jewish listeners, this would have evoked the scene from Simon Maccabeus, who two centuries earlier had departed from the Mount of Olives to hymns of Hosanna, O Save Us. And he was this military leader who liberated the poor people from oppression. This would have evoked the prophet Zechariah, who said the coming Messiah would come in on a donkey to singing and praise. So they were excited They broke into song, Hosanna, Hosanna, come save us, Lord, come save us. We can understand their excitement and hope. But I think we can also understand their confusion. For many in this crowd, the the song will change, and what began with chants of Hosanna, Hosanna will end by the end of this week with the chants, crucify him, crucify him. We can understand this confusion as they are longing for this military liberator who will save them, who will start up a new political revolution. And all they receive is this humble man tottering in on a baby donkey who is arrested and killed. Posing this question how does this save us? I suspect that in our own ways, we might be able to connect with the longing of these first-century worshipers. For we, too, as Tacitus described, lived in an era that is rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Perhaps some of us experience that in our personal lives today. We come longing for some freedom from some liberation from oppressive situations. I think even more so, we might have this phrase, God save us closer to our lips than in previous years. Sometime in the West, sometimes in the West with our relative affluence, we can not feel very vulnerable Ernest Becker, a sociologist, said that we live often with this denial of death in the West because we have so much abundance. We can kind of put off our vulnerability. But I think it's been exposed a little bit more this year as we've navigated this pandemic. Some of us experiencing economic vulnerability, experiencing health vulnerability. Some of us just push push to the brink of stress that we've come to the end of ourselves and realize our own brokenness in new ways this year. Do you feel today, in one way or another, that longing for someone to come and save, to come and liberate, to bring some healing to the brokenness you are experiencing? Some of us on a personal level are like these first worshipers, longing for hope. But others of us maybe are are just viewing this in in a bigger scale as we look upon a world gone wrong, as our news feeds are flooded with stories of injustice, of brokenness of a world that seems to be going against the grain of the kingdom of God that can make us feel a little bit overwhelmed and hopeless, that we too are longing for a Messiah. And it poses this question to us. What does this humble man who rode into Jerusalem on a baby donkey only to be killed have to do with any of these problems? At times it might seem not very practical or aggressive enough to deal with these very real-world problems that we face? How does Jesus and his coming to Jerusalem speak into our need and our longing for salvation and liberation? What I want to proclaim to you today is that I, I believe that this is precisely the king we need. And that the power that Jesus demonstrates is exactly the power that has the ability to transform a world gone wrong. You see, Jesus knows, I believe, exactly what he is doing as he enters Jerusalem. That there is intention in this parade— I want to pull up another quote from Ched Myers, and he says this. He says, This parade is filled with conflicting signals as if it intends to be a satire on military liberators. There is satire here. Jesus knows what he is doing. His, His journey into Jerusalem is beginning to signal to us that he is a different kind of liberator. Now, on the one hand, he fulfills the role of the coming Messiah. He departs from the Mount of Olives. He comes in to this praise, to these songs of Hosanna. And yet, he does things so much differently than the military liberators and the the false messiahs of the past. He doesn't come in on a, a grand stallion with an army. He totters in on a baby donkey. Ted Myers notes that he even is like gracious in how he borrows the donkey. In Mark chapter 11, he tells his disciples, let the people know we'll give him back the donkey when we're done with it. This doesn't sound like this plundering military leader He's actually thoughtful about those he's borrowing the donkey from. And then in Mark 11, at the end, there's like this anticlimactic moment. He enters Jerusalem, and he gets there a little bit late. No one is at the temple, and so he decides to leave and go back to Bethany. It's like this anticlimactic moment. But I want to suggest to you that there is intention, that Jesus is signaling to us that he is redefining the role of Messiah, that he has not come with violence and military strength, but he has come in with humble sacrifice and love. He has come not to have this practical, quick political fix, but come to set a new trajectory of how life can look in this world as he sacrifices himself for others, forgives his torturers, offers grace to his enemies. It poses this question to us. How does this humble man accomplish the liberation that we need. And again, I suggest to you that Jesus teaches us that the ability to transform this world from its brokenness, from its evil, is not through coercion, not through violence, but through love and sacrifice. I want to submit to you that this is actually what brings about lasting change in our lives and in our world that God came to not force us into his kingdom, but to woo us into this kingdom, that we might follow him not just out of duty, but out of desire as we discover the depth of his love for us and the depths of his grace for us. On Maundy Thursday, we're going to look at the text where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, also an event that signals that he is a different kind of king. Here is this man from whom the oceans and the lakes received their water, and instead he humbly takes this basin and pours it with water. This man, for whom all knees will eventually bow, gets down on his knees and washes to our feet like a servant. This is a different kind of power. And a different kind of king. And this is what I think Jesus is communicating to us. We change this world not through force, but through love. We change this world not by force, but through sacrifice. I want to pull up a quote from Timothy Keller. And this is his reflection on John 13 when he's giving his disciples this new commandment to love one another sacrificially. And he says this, The road to gaining influence is not through taking power. Influence gained through power and control doesn't really change society. It doesn't change hearts. I'm calling you to a totally different approach. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not only out for yourself, but out for them too. This is a different kind of power that we are called to yield to as we follow christ jesus we gain influence not through force and control but through sacrificial love that's what changes human hearts that's what changes society i think a great way to illustrate this is in the world of parenting and see some of those parents out there you maybe have experienced this that when we try and uh, choose the way of force and control, it, it sometimes backfires. It doesn't get very far, right? But it is through loving our children when they know that we are for them that change can happen. The last quote I want to pull up is from Reggie Joyner. He wrote a great book on parenting called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. And he he's commenting about his struggle with parenting teenagers where he has less and less control. But he says this, he says, Sometimes it's easy to forget that you can win the argument and force the right behavior but lose the heart in the process. I wonder if you've ever experienced that just in that world of parenting or caring for kids that— The way of force and control maybe gets some short-term results, but it doesn't actually change hearts. It doesn't even—doesn't actually cause kids to know that we are for them. And so we can force the behavior but lose the heart. On a big scale, I think Jesus is modeling this for us. That he changes human hearts not through force and coercion, but through a radical act of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And love, even forgiving those who are crucifying him. And what this does is this this sets a new catalyst for love in our world. As we experience grace, as we experience forgiveness, we become gracious and forgiving people. I believe this has the power to actually liberate us from the personal struggles that we face. To know that we have a God who loves us and forgives us, can set us free from the weight that we carry hope that we are not alone. And I think this speaks to how we might experience change on a bigger scale in our society, to bring about a, a deeper revolution in a world full of injustice and brokenness. I think Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. There are times when it is appropriate for us to to seek uh, bigger change and systemic change and to care about laws that are just and good. But at a deeper level, I would submit to you that we can't, at the end of the day, legislate love, legislate away things like racism and selfishness. These are matters of the human heart, and I believe Jesus' act on this Holy Week changes that core, gets to the heart of the matter that it is through his sacrifice and through his love that we are formed as people who know how to love and care for others. And that then has a ripple effect out in changing our society for good, for good. And so that is why we are called at the end of the Lord's Prayer to set aside our kingdoms, our agendas, our types of power and control, and yield to God's kingdom, his power, and his glory. For that is what will endure forever. I want to end with a story from a a German pastor and theologian, Helmut Felix. And he was a pastor during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany and was actually removed from his official post uh, as a pastor because he wouldn't submit to the powers of the Third Reich. But he held still an underground church, and he told a story where he was deeply disheartened he was leading a bible study on a wednesday night in germany and there was three people that showed up and they were all elderly people senior citizens and they were having this small bible study and halfway through the bible study their voices were drowned out by the marching of hitler's youth outside of the building where there are thousands of young people being raised up under a new kingdom and a different type of power. And Helmut Thelik felt as if the gospel had had no hope against this worldly power that seemed so aggressive and so insurmountable. How could his group of three counter this throng of thousands who were being raised up in a different ideology? One of violence. It was a moment where it felt like following Jesus didn't seem aggressive enough, didn't seem successful enough. And yet, we notice today that evil rulers who have sought to change this world through coercion and force have come and gone many who are despised as evil blips on the human story. But here this week, we gather together to continue to lift up the name of this humble man who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and died on a cross. We witness today that his kingdom and his power have endured. They endure now and will endure forever. It is this lasting power that will not be snuffed out by evil. Can we celebrate that and commit to this long journey of following the way of the cross that will, friends, endure forever, will endure the evil that sometimes seems insurmountable? Let us this week, as we journey with Jesus, yield now our hearts to his kingdom, his power, and his glory. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for the the Messiah that you are. And we confess that at times we seek other things to to change our world and to liberate us, but we want to commit ourselves again to following the way of servanthood, the way of love, the way of forgiveness, the way of the cross. And we celebrate this week, Lord, that what you accomplished this holy week will endure. It is at work. It is powerful both now and forever. Praise be to God. Amen.